If you would, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. As the kids are headed backwards, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 30 and we're going to creep forward halfway through chapter 10. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10 and verses 13. And um, this morning I put the uh, central truth at the front end of this. So if you would look at the screen and fill in the blanks on your bulletin. But our central truth this morning, sinful man pursues righteousness by his own works, but... It is only by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ that one can obtain righteousness. So the bad news is that sinful man pursues righteousness by his own works. That's still you and I. We're still sinful and we still strive in this world at times to find our rightness, our right relationship with the Lord through works. And yet, Scripture is clear that rightness, righteousness, can only come through faith and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you are not a Christian, if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this truth is for you this morning, but for my brothers and sisters here as well who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a reminder to us. When we get caught up in our own strivings and our own works Monday through Sunday, that we need to remember that our salvation, our relationship with the Lord is based not on our works, but upon the work of Christ. Amen? This is His central truth. We're going to pick this apart as we walk through the text this morning. So if you would, um, eyeballs on the text with me. We're on verse 30 this morning. Paul says, what should we say then? So a new question, more rhetoric. This is all on a discussion about the Gentiles and the Jews and salvation and how come Jews haven't believed. This is an ongoing discourse. He's going to pivot here to a new topic. He says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness. So Gentiles, that's anyone who's not a Jew. All right, that's probably most of us. There's an irony here that Paul is pointing out that somehow Gentiles of all people found, obtained righteousness and they weren't even pursuing it. How's that possible? Well, the single worded answer is grace. That it's God's grace that we as Gentiles have discovered, obtained this righteousness that was originally directed to a select group of people, the Jews. So he says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. So how is this possible? It is the gift of faith. It is the grace of faith that makes sinful men and women righteous. Now in contrast, Paul's going to pit Gentiles against Jews here. He's going to pit the Gentiles' faith to the Jewish works here. In verse 31, you see the word but, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law, 
Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. So we see this word pursue twice. It's important. It is literally referring to a race. So um, track, cross country, running, that's what Paul's getting at. That one group wasn't racing at all towards it, and yet this other group were pursuing it intentionally. But how is the difference? One group, the Gentiles by faith, the other group, the Jews by works. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but want, but as if it were works, here's the problem. They did not achieve, they did not obtain righteousness. They, Paul continues, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were works, they stumbled over the stumble, a stumbling stone. For as it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. This is one of four times that this verse is quoted in the New Testament. And it's referring to the stumbling stone. So church, who is the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ. There's two verbs here, to stumble over. Um, This word here, to stumble over, in that first line, uh, can be translated physical stumbling. That's the way that our translation has it. But the second way it can be translated is more metaphorical, more internal, and that of offense. So some of your translations, if you're using a different translation, says a stone in Zion of offense. And so the point is, Jesus was the stone upon which people stumbled over. Why? Because people took offense over. The second line, in a rock to trip over. This verb, to trip over, is the word scandalon in the Greek. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's a scandal. That's where we got this word scandal from. And so for the Jews looking at Jesus, he was an offense, one. And number two, he was a scandal to behold. Why? Because Jesus was crucified on a cross and to hang on a tree was a what? It was a curse. So so the Jewish mindset just could not comprehend this. The Old Testament said that to hang on the tree is to be cursed. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, hanging on a, a tree of sorts, a cross. And so he's it's offensive, and it's a scandal to the Jewish thinking. But Paul says here, this is the problem. Instead of standing on the rock or standing underneath the rock, they stumbled over it. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is referred to as a rock, the rock of salvation. As you have studied God's Word time and time again, you see this metaphor, the Lord is a rock. What does that mean? In, in our city culture, right, we, we, don't, we don't understand this fully. But the, the metaphor of rock can be taken two ways. One, it's solid and I can stand on it. It's not shifting ground. The Lord is solid, right? We're tracking with that metaphor. The other way is that he's like a big mountain rock. 
And there's like a cave, and he's a refuge. He's a place where we can find refuge. He's our rock. Does that make sense? Either way, they didn't see Jesus as the rock. And the irony is, because they didn't see him, they stumbled over him. Because they were blinded, they stumbled over him. But here's how it ends, this prophecy. The one who believes on him, though, will not be put to shame. So you see, there was shame thinking about Jesus on the cross. But the reality is, Jesus on the cross, what was his greatest work? He's taking all of our shame upon him on that cross. Sure, it was shameful. He's naked. He's being crucified. But the point is, he's taking our shame upon himself. And so, the one who believes will not be put to shame. Now, we're going to dissect this word believe a little bit as well. All right, this word believe is the Greek word pisteo. We're in lecture mode right here, okay? It's the verbal form of the noun faith. So when you read the Bible and you see faith, 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 that's the noun, are we all tracking? Can we go back to like freshman English? Faith is the noun. Translators translate this word believe as the verbal form of faith. Because we don't walk around as Americans saying, I faith in something. Right? We say, I believe. All right, so translators translate this word believe instead of faith. Are we all kind of tracking? I think this does a disservice to the church because what ends up happening is there's this potential to turn to turn faith into just belief. Because, right, believe is just thrown around in our in our English today, believe is just thrown around as if an equivalent word for hope. All right, I hope the Diamondbacks will win game 3. But it's kind of like, I believe the Diamondbacks will win game three. It's the equivalency. Faith is much more than belief. Faith, biblical faith, is much more than cerebral assent. It's more than just nodding and saying, yeah, I agree with that truth. That's not enough. Faith, according to James, is belief accompanied by what? works that faith is visible that faith is demonstrative that it's accompanied by fruit evidence proof and so when we look at the story of the bible we see many many men of faith right noah in faith did what built the ark he listened to god he believed him up here right but more than that he did something yeah? Abraham was called by God and he believed God. But what? Abraham moved his feet and left his land to the place that God was going to tell him to go to. Remember that story? In faith, Abraham takes his only son Isaac up the mountain, right? And he has the dagger in his hand. And in faith, he's about ready. He's plunging downward 
in faith, not just cognizance, yes, but he's moving that hand down and the Lord cries out, says, stop. David, in faith, right? He doesn't just say, oh, I I can beat Goliath. He doesn't just walk around the camp. Oh, I can beat him. Oh, I can beat him. What does David do? He picks up some stones and he walks out to the field, field of battle. So what is faith, guys? It's not just easy believism. It's not just nodding your head and agreeing. That's not faith. Faith is agreeing, step one. But faith is, step two, doing something about it. Trusting. A better word for the translators out there, if you ever have an opportunity to talk to one, might be trust. Because what does trust necessitate, right? Doing something, waiting upon. The one who faith, the one who puts their faith in Jesus will not be put to shame. Do you believe that? Paul's talking to the early church. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of outward offense. There's a lot of mocking. And the diff, you know, there's no difference today. It's 2,000 years later, and there are plenty of academics, plenty of politicians, plenty of bosses and neighbors who mock. But this is what he proclaims this morning to you. If you put your faith in him, guess what, guys? In the future, it's a future verb, you will not be ashamed. Amen? And so when we're being persecuted, when we're feeling that oppression, when we're feeling that doubt, when those attacks come at us, we need to remember God's Word. And we need to stand on Christ, believing, trusting that we will not be ashamed. He continues in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, we're going to talk a lot about faith today. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them. Who is them, church? Who's he been talking about this whole time? The Jews. My heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. And remember, Paul's a Jew himself. His DNA ethnic brothers and sisters have not believed Jesus to be the Messiah They have stumbled over him, but his prayer, his zeal is for their salvation. He continues, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, that they have passion for God, but not according to knowledge. So they have passion, but they're lacking what? Knowledge. They're lacking the truth. They're lacking the understanding. They've been pursuing God with zealousness, but they've been doing it the wrong way. And again, we go up to that first section. How have they been doing it? Through works, not faith. They're passionate about the Lord, but the way they go about it is completely incorrect. They're doing it all by works 
instead of faith. Let me pause. How many of you guys are zealous for the Lord? How many of us are passionate for the Lord? And let me ask the next question. How many of us fall into the trap, though, of thinking that our works are what gain approval with the Lord? That our works are what make us or keep us right with Him? We can fall in this trap too, folks. I believe that because I do. I fall into it all the time. So just because you're passionate, just because you're zealous, doesn't mean that that you're actually um, right with the Lord. Excuse me. (coughs) Say, he says at one point, Jesus says at one point, um, away from you, you workers of iniquity, for I have never what known you. That there's going to come a day where there's going to be a lot of people who come to him in eternity in judgment, and they think they have a right to get into heaven. Why? Because of everything they've done in his name. But he's going to say, all you were doing was iniquity. You didn't know me. That was the important thing. Righteousness does not come through works. It comes through faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They are ignorant. Verse 3. Why is this? Because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They, in so doing, have not submitted to God's righteousness. Right, and so here's where we introduce an important word in church culture, and it's called self-righteousness. Right? The Pharisees were self-righteous, and if you've been in church long enough, right, you've rubbed shoulders with certain people who come across as very self-righteous. What does that mean? Let's just take a poll. You guys been in church for a while? Have you known people who are self-righteous? What does that mean? What does that look like? Those types are just always kind of doing, doing, doing. And there's an air of judgmentalism that they're better than others, that they're more holy than others, that they're more beloved than others. Why? Because of their doing, doing, doing. Because the other people aren't doing 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 you've been you've been there it's sad and there's judgment on them and justification on themselves swearing i don't think you should drinking versus drunkenness what you wear how much you serve how much you give. You guys been in the church for a while? And there's just an air of superiority. That's self-righteousness. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. Again, what is the righteousness of God? Paul says... Our righteousness cannot come from ourselves. 
Righteousness, true righteousness, listen, true rightness can only come from the Lord and His work. So he continues, for, that means why. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We around here, we like to say this phrase. We like to say that all Scripture points to all of it. Every single bit of it. New Testament and the Old Testament. That's why we go through the Old Testament Bible, through our Bible studies, just as much as the New Testament. Because all Scripture points to Jesus. Even the really weird Scriptures, guess what? Point to Jesus. What Paul's saying is that everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, whatever the last verse is, is pointing to, escalating, climaxing in Jesus. That there's been a trajectory from Genesis 1, and it's been moving, moving, moving towards an ending point. What's the end point? Christ. That all those works, all those laws, all those commandments, all those expectations have been fulfilled in Christ and now are done because of Christ. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. Why? Because they haven't understood that it's not their righteousness, it's Christ's fulfilled righteousness on the cross. That there was an ending point, and that ending point was the cross and the resurrection. Since, verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. So he's going to go back to Moses, and he's going to quote from Deuteronomy. Okay, so let me read this, and then we'll look at Deuteronomy as well. The righteousness that is from the law, here's the example. It's in bold in the Christian Standard Bible because that's showing you it's from the Old Testament. He's quoting it. So he says, The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So verse 6 and 7, that's a mouthful, but he's quoting from Deuteronomy. I got it on the screen here. It's going to be two slides. Read with me. This is the original that he's quoting from. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. God is giving the Israelites the commandments on Mount Sinai, whatever. All right, here are the commands. And God is saying, it's right here in front of you. It's not far away. It's not up the mountain. It's not in the sea. It's right here. It's right here. You can do this. Okay? So it is not in heaven so that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven and get it for us? and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. In the historical context, the law was given to them. They don't have to go up the mountain. They don't have to ascend up to God. God's upstairs somewhere. Remember, like ancient civilizations would build these pyramids, these ziggurats, in the hopes of getting closer to God. Remember the story of Babel? You don't have to do that. I have come down to you, and I've given you the law. 
Okay? He continues, and it is not across the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. If you notice, in Romans, Paul changes the words a bit. All right, That's because the Greek text, the translation changed it a little bit. But it's not too different because here's the deal. The word sea was often seen as an abyss to, to Hebrews and or Israelites and their thinking. Uh, Israelites did not like the sea. All right, they stayed away from it. The sea, if we go back to Revelation chapter 11-ish, the beast coming out of the sea, the abyss, the sea was symbolic of chaos. Israelites liked the land. They did not like the sea. And so this is kind of just a synonym. But you don't go up the mountain to get it. You don't need to go down into the sea or across the sea to get it. Why? Because God has given it to them right then and there. Historical context, the giving of the law. But the message is very near to you, he finishes, in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. This is the historical context. God came down the mountain through Moses gave the Israelites the law. Are we all tracking? Okay, now what does Paul do here then? If you don't understand the historical context, verses 6 and 7 just get a little confusing. So what is Paul saying in verses 6 through 7? The righteousness that comes from faith is like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven. So he looks back at Deuteronomy. He says, it's not about going up. We don't have to do that anymore. Why, folks? Because Christ has come down. All right, not just that the law was given to us in physical form on tablets, but here he's saying, you and I don't have to go to the moon. We don't have to go out to the furthest galaxies to find God. All right, that's where, you know, technology is headed. But God has come to us, Jesus incarnate, John chapter 1. We don't have to go up. Secondly, we don't have to go down anywhere. We don't have to dig down and explore the ocean to find God. Instead, and he makes the comparison, Jesus has what? Risen. We don't have to go down to Sheol, hell, the abyss. He's risen. He's conquered death. And so on the contrary, verse 8, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Even more so than Moses and the tablets, something else has transpired spiritually where God now dwells in the hearts of men and women. That God is so close, He now dwells, not on a mountain, not in a written form, but within those who, what's the magic word? Believe, faith. Those who trust. If, and this is the message of faith that we proclaim, And so what is that message? Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So he's going to reduce all of this to just these statements, okay? How is one saved? How is one made right with the Lord? Not through our own self-righteousness, not through our own works. Here's the answer. How is one made right with the Lord? Verse 9 if you confess with your mouth. Number one, there's two steps. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So this is a loaded statement. We're going to unpack this, okay? 
the first thing you need to do is confess with your mouth. That means you need to say it out loud. That if you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus equals Lord. What is Lord? Who is Lord? Lord is God. The Greek word is kurios. Throughout the Greek Old Testament, kurios always referred to Lord, Yahweh. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is not just a good teacher, a community organizer, a philosopher, a political leader of sorts, but no, if you go beyond that and you confess that Jesus is actually Yahweh, that's step one. Are we tracking? And again, it's out loud. And and look, it's present tense as well. It's not just a once and done thing. It's like present tense if you do this all the time. If you believe, if you trust, if you faith in the Lord Jesus in this way daily, that you're always confessing out loud. It's one thing to go to church and never open your mouth about Jesus, except for when you're singing. It's another thing to go to church and get baptized one time. Like this is a public demonstration of of one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We celebrate. We love it. But if your life is marked by just one instance of you confessing Jesus, that's just strange. Because this is a present tense verb. If you confess out loud, vocally, verbally, that Jesus is God. Now, one last thing here, okay? Like, there are things in my life that I struggle with, okay? Decisions, just wisdom. You know, and as a man, it's it's even more complicated. Men tend to bottle things up, right? And we analyze and we self-reflect and we just, like, go down that rabbit hole and we never come up and we never talk about it verbalize but here's the thing you know when i know that my life is going to be different you know when i know that life is going to change dramatically it's when i choose to walk in faith like take several steps across the room and open my mouth to christy like until i tell christy That's my wife, by the way, right? Until I open my mouth and it comes out of my mouth and my wife hears it, it's all meaningless. This is all meaningless. It's pointless. It doesn't require any action. I'm just in my thoughts. Are you guys tracking with me? But when you open up your mouth and you let it come out, it becomes real, doesn't it? To a friend, to a mom, to a parent, to a, a brother, a sister, and to your wife to your pastor, when you open that mouth and it comes out, it's like there's no going back, is there? Are you tracking with me? All right, let's give one more example. Often in this church, this building, you have a dude here and you have a female here and you have the pastor here and you all are out there and what's taking place? And they have what? Vow exchanges, yeah? Out loud. Could you ever imagine a marriage that 
begins with, well, we're not going to exchange vows. I don't want to say it out loud. How would you feel going into that marriage? Would there be a lot of trust? But it's a proclamation. It's a declaration. And the truth is, the marriage only lasts as long as those declarations continue in one form or another. So I beat this dead horse to death, okay? Number one, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. Are we all tracking with number one? Now there's an and there, so this is number two. And, that word is faith, believe. If you faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the second thing is that if you faith from where? In your heart that Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to pick this apart. We've talked about faith. Faith is active. It's demonstrative. But the second part, from your heart, what does that mean? Again, if we approach this text as simply Americans, we're going to misinterpret it. Because typically when we talk about the heart, we're thinking as Americans, lovey-dovey emotionalism. We're thinking Valentine's Day and feelings. But that's not biblical. All right, we always interpret based on how it was written back then and the intent to the original audience. The heart, biblically, is much more than just feelings. The heart speaks to the center, to the core of one's life. It's the inner processor that controls everything. All right, everything comes in it, everything flows out of it. It's the central processor. And so it's not even just the head, theologically, theoretically. And it's not the emotions. Yeah, I can get on board with that right now because it feels good. This is why we don't baptize immediately after a worship service. Some churches do that. Hey, you want to get baptized? Come on down. We would rather counsel, disciple, talk through it, and make sure that that decision is coming from the heart. Are you tracking? Not an emotional response. Women, should you marry a dude just out of an emotional response in that moment? Okay, we have some, what do we call it before the marriage? An engagement period, right? Although my parents, I think, were married in one month, right? And they're still together, so I don't know, okay. But the point is, is it coming from just this? Is it coming from just this? Or is it core? Because the decision is to abandon everything. All right. In Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. You enter into a marriage. Will you deny your wife later? Will you deny your husband later? It's a commitment of the greatest magnitude. All right. So, number one, you confess with your mouth out loud, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. From the dead infers that he died, that he was on the cross also. So it's, I believe it's a belief, it's a faith in his death and his resurrection. You guys tracking? Okay, so how many of you guys have done that? Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you believe that he is... God, 
and that he was raised back to life. Paul says, folks, that in verse 8, this is the message of faith we proclaim. This is the type of faith that the church ought to proclaim. This is the faith that God expects people to receive. In verse 10, 4, one believes with the heart, one faiths from the heart, resulting in righteousness. That it is faith from the heart that affects rightness with the Lord. Does he say anything else does that? Faith plus? Faith in Jesus' resurrection and lordship plus going to church? Plus giving money to the church? Plus saying a Hail Mary? Plus going on a mission trip? Plus becoming a pastor? It's just if you have faith in your heart that results in righteousness and confession with the mouth resulting in salvation. Why? Verse 11, 4, the Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who faiths on Him will not be put to shame. Let's back up to the last couple chapters. Everyone God elects. Yes, I'm going back there. Will be given faith to believe. Faith is a gift. I'm filling in the cracks here. But everyone who believes on him will. So here's the point not everyone's going to believe, it's everyone who believes will be saved. Am I right? Or am I a heretic? Not everyone's going to believe. There are going to be people who are going to continue to trip over Jesus. They're going to trip over this gospel message. There are going to be people who continue to see this gospel message as completely offensive. And they will not have the faith to believe. But here's the good news, guys. God's grace. God's grace gives faith to some to believe. And if you're here this morning, the question is, do you believe? The question, you can look behind the curtain and again, think about how the sausage is made and question all that kind of stuff about God's selective sovereign purposes and you can do that. But the real issue is, if you're sitting here this morning, can you believe? Because you're either on one side of the fence or the other. You either believe or you don't. But the call, the message that is being proclaimed in this moment, will you believe? Is there something within you this morning that you can take a step forward to Jesus Christ and you choose to believe? That you choose to put your faith in this man who is not just a man, but who is God himself, who died on a cross, took upon, taken a, who took upon himself all your shame, and then rose, demonstrating that he is way more powerful than your shame. 
demonstrating He is way more powerful than the grave, demonstrating He is way more powerful than your sin. That's the issue. Because the call goes out to everyone. But will you believe? On Him, you will not be put to shame if you do. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Him. Again, this is not saying all are going to call on Him. We always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Context, context, context is the golden rule. He's been talking about Jews and Greeks and salvation. Here, it doesn't matter if you're Jew. doesn't matter if you're Greek. The issue is belief. Will you believe? The last thing here, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the truth. Now look, again, distinction, splicing and dicing. Not everyone will call on the name of the Lord, though. You live next to a neighbor who hasn't yet or who never will. You guys have a coworker who hasn't yet and maybe never will. There are plenty of people in your lives who have not called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Plenty of people who will never call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not aware of that, then your head has been buried in the sand. But everyone who does call will be saved. So what is our job? Our job is to proclaim the gospel, to pray for that person, to hope that they will call upon the name of the Lord, but also to just kind of recognize and not beat ourselves up that not everyone will. I want to turn to three points of application this morning as we close out three questions. Are you currently trusting in your own self-righteousness? As you hear God's Word and as He's spoken to us, maybe He has prodded and meddled in your heart today over this issue of self-righteousness. If you are currently trusting in your own self-righteousness this morning, will you admit that? Will you recognize that? And will you turn to Him, to Jesus Christ? Will you this morning, maybe for the first time, confess out loud that you would tell your wife or husband on the way home, that you would tell your child or your mother or father on your way home, that you will tell the pastor at the end of this service that you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and that you trust Him, you believe, you faith that He and His righteousness has been given to you. That you have come to a point in your life where you realized all of my works don't get me to where I want to be. That all of my striving, in all of my striving, I keep coming up short. This morning, will you turn to Jesus and will you confess Him as Lord, Savior? Will you trust that He gives out the, the righteousness? Number two, if you've been beating yourself up over a particular sin this week, if you've kind of, you know, there's so many people who don't come to church on Sunday because of something that happened Saturday. And the guilt and the shame, just it's like they're dragging their feet to come back. But remember, you will not be put to shame. 
Why? Because he took your shame. There is no more shame. It's not about your works of good and bad. It's solely about his work of righteousness on that cross. And so if you're beating yourself up again about another sin or the same sin this morning, will you turn to Jesus once again? Will you confess him as Lord and Savior? Will you trust in his imputed righteousness? Just do it. Amen? And I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. We fall into these traps. Here's another trap, the last one. If you've fallen into the trap of believing God's approval is based solely upon your works, will you once again turn to Jesus, trust Him as Lord and Savior, trust in His imputed righteousness? It's about His righteousness, not yours. On the cross, He took upon our sin. He took it down to hell. He left it there. And He popped back up and He gives out His righteousness freely to those who believe. This morning, will you believe? Will you faith? Will you trust? Because here's the problem. It's a trap. It's a scandal. It's that same idea. Satan hoodwinks us. He tricks us. And we somehow along the course of life, even as a Christian, start to believe the lie that our approval is based upon our works. But folks, it's not. If the father loves his child, he just loves his child. There are plenty of times my boys and my girl don't live up to my expectations, but it does not change my love for them. There have been plenty of times I have not lived up to my parents' expectations, but that has not changed their love for their son. And it's the same thing for our father. Listen, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen clearly, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can't do to make him love you more than he loves you now. Do you believe that? There's nothing you can do to make him love you more than he loves you right now. That has been dealt with on the cross. Buried, and it's under the ground, gone. And in return, we've gotten, we've received his righteousness. It's about His righteousness, church, not ours. Amen? Let us stop striving. Let us stop falling into that really bad category of self-righteousness. And let's continue in the present tense to trust, to believe, to faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And let's go tell others. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for Your truths. Lord, I just ask for um, your grace upon all my brothers and sisters here this morning that um, for those who are just struggling and beating themselves up with sin and habits and just transgressions once again, that, Lord, your truth, um, the seeds of your truth would be birthed and germinated into like just fruit of, of uh, 
of faith. Lord, that you have saved us. Uh, Anyone who has called upon the name of the Lord is saved. That you've given that faith and that faith is enough. That is, that is, that's the only thing that you require of us is just to respond in faith. So Lord, this morning, help each of us to respond in faith. Lord, if faith is a gift, give us more faith this morning to trust. To trust that we have been forgiven. Lord, that um, our approval is not based upon our own righteousness, but solely on the righteousness of your Son. Lord, I pray for any any person this morning who has come in here and who and who wasn't saved prior, I pray that right now they would be saved, that you would call them to yourself, that you would give them the faith to trust you this morning and to experience the full-fledged cleansing of their sin, Lord, the renewed relationship with Creator. And Lord, let us be a church that just understands these components Lord, these doctrinal points that work together. Lord, to understand our work in it and to understand Your work in it. To be obedient. To be good steward in the good works that You've called us to do according to Ephesians 2.10. Lord, let us be faithful in those things by Your grace, by Your empowerment, by Your wisdom and guidance. But Lord... Most of all, help us to rest in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God so that we may not boast, so that you might get all the glory. Lord Jesus, be exalted in the life of your church. We ask this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's stand.